Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I've got a great show for you guys today, so let's jump right in. And today we're going to focus on some articles that I found in the news that I thought were particularly interesting. We're going to start out with an update on the Delphi case. This article is Indiana child porn suspect tied to Delphi murders, expected to plead guilty, leaving questions unanswered. And we covered off on the Delphi murders back in episode 129 that you can find. It was posted May 5th. So if you want more details on this particular case, please go back to that episode. But in any case, an Indiana man accused of possessing child pornography and who has suspected ties to the 2017 murders of two teenage girls in Delphi, Indiana, is expected to plead guilty to dozens of alleged child exploitation crimes. Keegan Klein, 28, is currently in custody in Miami County, Indiana, for some 25 child pornography-related charges dating back to 2016 and 2017. While he has never been charged in the Delphi murders, he was linked to the crime through a fictitious Instagram account that had apparently been in contact with 14-year-old Liberty German the night before she was murdered. If Keegan changes his plea from not guilty to guilty, of course, there will be no trial. On the one hand, that would spare Miami County expenses, and it's a pretty traumatic case. At the same time, it could also deprive the public of some more details and answers on what exactly is going on here because a trial is an opportunity for both sides to say their piece. No trial in Klein's case will leave some questions unanswered. Indiana authorities in October arrested Richard Allen, 50, in connection with the February 14, 2017 killings of Liberty German, 14, and Abigail Williams, 13, German's sister dropped the pair off at the entrance of a popular hiking trail the day prior. Forensic analysis carried out by the Indiana State Police Laboratory on a pistol found at Allen's home determined that an unspent round located within two feet of victim two's body had been cycled through Richard Allen's Sig Sauer Model P226, an affidavit alleges. After Allen's arrest, Klein's connection to the Delphi murders became muddled. It's very apparent that there was an investigation into Keegan as it pertains to Delphi, but it's not clear where that stands now that there's been another man arrested, say the authorities. So we feel the significance of his possible upcoming guilty plea underscores a lot of the confusion remaining in this case. Klein's plea hearing will take place in Miami County this next week. Investigators allege that Klein made plans through the Instagram account that he had to meet up with German at the bridge where her body was found the next day, but he denies that he had anything to do with the girl's killings. In December 2021, the Indiana State Police said in a Facebook post that it had uncovered a fictitious Instagram account under the username Anthony underscore shots during its investigation into the murders. A transcript says the client had access to the account, which had been in contact with German. Klein told investigators, however, that he gave the account password to a lot of people, according to the document. This profile has been used from 2016 to 2017 on social media applications, including but not limited to Snapchat and Instagram, Indiana police said in a Facebook post. The fictitious Anthony underscore shots profile used images of a known male model and portrayed himself as being extremely wealthy and owning numerous sports cars. 
the creator of the fictitious profile used this information while communicating with juvenile females to solicit nude images, obtain their addresses, and attempt to meet them. Pictured below, you'll see the images of the known male model and images of the fictitious Anthony underscore shots profile sent to underage females. Authorities are asking anyone who may know anything about the Instagram profile or anything else about the case to contact law enforcement at Abby and Libby tip at C-A-C-O-S-H-R-F dot com or 765-822-3535. Next article that I want to talk about is a man was found living in an attic after items mysteriously went missing and the homeowner smelled cigarette smoke, police say. And Kelsey Vladmus wrote this particular article. A man in Washington state made a disturbing discovery after items had gone missing and he smelled cigarette smoke in his house. Police in Mill Creek, located about 20 miles northeast of Seattle, said they had responded to a call this week from a homeowner who said he was missing over $3,000 and some personal documents. He believed a man was sleeping in his attic. The suspect was located inside the dwelling and taken into custody without incident. All but approximately $30 of the stolen belongings were recovered, including the victim's wallet and foreign passport, the Mill Creek Police Department said in a statement. The homeowner was initially tipped off when he smelled cigarette smoke inside and traced it to a loft upstairs, where he found a makeshift bed, a running heater, drugs, and half-eaten food, according to local station KCPQ. Police came to the home on Monday but were unable to locate the suspect and told the resident the person would likely return. The suspect returned the next day and police again responded to the home where they were able to take him into custody. Police also said they were able to return the stolen items to the homeowner at that time. It's unclear how long police believe the 24-year-old suspect had been inside the home before being discovered. He was charged with residential burglary, second-degree theft, and possession of fentanyl um, and methamphetamine. Mill Creek Police urged residents to store their valuables in secure locations. A similar incident occurred in Oklahoma City in 2020 when a homeowner told police he thought the noises coming from his attic were being made by squirrels until he discovered a 28-year-old man living in his attic. The homeowner held the man at gunpoint until police arrived. Wow, that is definitely frightening indeed. The next article that I found that I thought was particularly interesting is the Supreme Court is about to hear two major cases that could transform the internet. And Kate Murphy wrote this one. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear two major cases involving big technology companies with key aspects of the internet on the line with its rulings later this year. First up is Gonzalez v. Google. The underlying lawsuit was filed by the family of an American woman, Nohemi Gonzalez, who was killed in a 2015 ISIS attack in Paris. The family alleges that Google, which owns YouTube, is liable because its algorithms promoted extremist content to people likely to be susceptible to it. The case looks at whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act provides protection for an internet platform's automated recommendations. Google argues that it has immunity under the statute because ISIS, not YouTube, was the creator of the videos. Section 230 is the foundational law of the modern internet. It was devised in 1996 to encourage the development of internet platforms that would facilitate speech. 
according to a Georgetown University law professor. Section 230 said the internet speakers who say harmful things are to be held responsible for what they say, but the platforms that might carry that kind of harmful speech will not be liable for that speech. In a related case, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in Twitter v. Tamena, where relatives of Naras Alasif, who was killed in a 2017 ISIS-related attack in Istanbul, argue that Twitter, Google, and Facebook should be held legally responsible, alleging that ISIS used the platforms to recruit members and that the tech companies didn't do enough to curb their extremist users. Twitter argues that lower court rulings create a statute of impossible breadth, saying that businesses like banks and rental car companies would also be liable if a judge found that they could have done more to eradicate terrorists using these services. This case concerns Section 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act and whether websites can be held liable for violence connected to their platforms. We've got these two cases and they're going in two different directions and have two different statutes. In an effort to understand the arguments of both sides of the cases and what sorts of implications they could ultimately have on users' internet experiences, Chandler broke it down to Yahoo News. Some answers have been edited for length and clarity. Are these types of cases typical for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear? These cases are cases of statutory interpretation. The Supreme Court is the ultimate arbiter of what a federal statute means. So in that sense, they are typical. This is the first time that the Supreme Court has looked at this particular section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. What do the plaintiffs argue in the Gonzalez v. Google case? This is a case that's gotten more attention, and deservedly so. What the plaintiffs argue is that automated recommendation services are the acts of Twitter or Google or Facebook, and they are distinct from the bad acts of the speakers themselves. So Section 230 should not cover the recommendation in these cases, even if it covers the publication of that material. The case arises out of tragic terrorism events in Paris, and the family of one of the victims sued the internet platforms, in this case, for what they say is recommending videos potentially to individuals who might have been motivated, thereby kind of radicalizing them. What does Google argue? Google, of course, has policies against terrorist content. Its automated and human moderation systems are not perfect, so it's possible that some terrorist content was recommended accidentally by its systems. But Google says the connection between its accidental acts and these events is very tenuous. At that level, if this connection is enough, a lot of humanity's failures would be laid at the feet of internet platforms. The legal defense in this context on Section 230 is that it covers internet publishers, and one of the key things that publishers do is recommend. They filter, choose, decide, and prioritize what to publish and what not to publish. The act of sorting among various items is a core act of publishers, and that is exactly what Section 230 protects internet companies from being held liable for. What question is at issue in the Twitter v. Tamana case? The argument is that Twitter allowed terrorist promotion materials on its services, even though it is clearly against Twitter's policies. There, the question is a federal statute called the Anti-Terrorism Statute. The legal question in this case is whether or not Twitter can be held liable for aiding and abetting terrorism for these very indirect acts. What does Twitter argue? The core facts of this case are very similar, so it's a very similar argument, which in that statute, Section 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act should not be read to allow for liability for tenuous connections such as the one between the speech platform's activity and actual terrorism. 
The lower courts have not yet considered whether Section 230 can protect Twitter in this case, though as you can see, the facts are very similar to the Google case. It seems likely that if Google wins, Twitter also finds protection under 230 in its case. These cases are similar, but could the Supreme Court rule differently in both of them? Yes, that's possible because the statutory interpretation question is different in both cases. So it's possible for Google to win and Twitter to lose or vice versa. If the Supreme Court rules against Google or Twitter, what are the broader implications? This is a case where there are nearly 50 briefs on Google's side, an immense outpouring of briefs on one side of the case. Sites like Reddit and Wikipedia and Craigslist have all submitted briefs in support of Google, arguing that they too use automated systems and provide other recommendations that they worry will now lead to liability. How could a user's internet experience change? Internet companies would be far more nervous about hosting controversial speech because now they could face lawsuits for hosting that speech because their systems might accidentally recommend it. This, some people think, is a good thing. It could lead companies to take down more speech online, but all sides of the political spectrum are engaged in sometimes controversial speech. If Google loses, internet platforms will likely remove controversial speech because of liability concerns. What is your overall concern for the outcome of these two cases? The general worry is that we don't want the internet companies to police our speech in ways that are simply because of liability concerns. We do want them to enforce their community guidelines, but not because they fear lawsuits, because that will lead to a lot of speech being suppressed. Lawsuits only come in one direction for not taking content down, so internet companies have an incentive to take down controversial speech. But they won't be sued for not saying something. You get an occasional lawsuit where someone says, you took down my content, but you shouldn't have. Those lawsuits are going to fail. Interesting indeed. Next article. A Florida OnlyFans model is suing her local school district, saying sexually explicit images of her were shared among staff at her children's school. And Sam Tabahariti wrote this article. And OnlyFans has been getting a lot of publicity lately. In this particular case, a Florida OnlyFans model is suing her local school district, saying sexually explicit images of her were shared among staff at her children's school. Victoria Treese, 31, is seeking damages from Orange County Public Schools, citing cyber harassment and invasion of privacy. According to the complaint, Treese displays sexually explicit images on her OnlyFans site, but reasonably expects these images would not be shared with teachers, principals, and school district staff. As a result of the dissemination of the images, Treese has suffered shame, humiliation, mental anguish, hurt feelings, and aggravation, the complaint says. Orange County Public Schools did not respond to a request for comment. A spokesperson for the district told other media that it does not comment on pending litigation, which is not unusual, right? The complaint says that Treese has been an active volunteer at Orange County Schools for five years. It says that in October 2021, she was instructed by the principal of Sand Lake Elementary School, which her children attend, that she would no longer be around children on school grounds. These instructions came from the Orange County Public School Board, the complaint says, adding that the action harmed her right to attend functions with her children on district property and thereby caused losses to her. The complaint says Treese is seeking damages in excess of 50000 and has requested a trial by jury. It's the second time Treese has launched legal action against the district. 
Judge Petra Brownlee dismissed the first lawsuit in March of 2022, saying Trees did not show a clear right to participate in the volunteering program. When contacted for comment, Trees referred Insider to her lawyer, who did not immediately respond. Wow. Well, it'll be interesting to see how that case unfolds. Next article. Woman pens love letters to accused Idaho killer Brian Kohlberger, calling him the perfect man. And Jessica Sladebeck wrote this article. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, Brian Koberger, the Washington State University criminology student accused of murdering four University of Idaho undergraduates, is not without his admirers. In a series of love letters posted to social media, a woman named Brittany Hislope gushes over Koberger, declaring him her love interest and the perfect man. I don't know if Brian is or was single when he supposedly committed the murders, but I wonder if he and I would have ever met if he would have liked me and if we could have connected as well, Hislope wrote in one lengthy note. Hislope, a self-described single mother from Kentucky, said she was initially drawn to the fact that she and Koberger apparently have the same birthday, making them both Scorpios. She said she has seen several videos, including body cam footage of Koberger, and has kept up with the case. Her missives first started appearing on Facebook in early January, not long after Koberger was arrested for the murders of 21-year-old friends Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncalvez, their housemate Zana Carnoodle, 20, and her boyfriend Ethan Chapin, also 20. Authorities found all four students dead from fatal stab wounds on November 13th inside a Moscow, Idaho home near the University of Idaho campus. The female victims shared the residence with two other women who were both home and survived the violence. Koberger was taken into custody at his family home in Pennsylvania on December 30th, almost seven weeks after the quadruple murder. He's being held without bail at the Lataw County Jail on four charges of murder and one count of felony burglary. I don't think of being with others in the ways I think of being with him, Hislop wrote in one note. And thoughts of being with him also give me sensations that I wouldn't get when thinking of someone else, because I have deep feelings for Brian and I am fixated on him. In another post, she said she wondered if Koberger was her divine masculine counterpart, outlining her belief that those with similar birthdays are more likely to be compatible. She also acknowledged some of her commenters who compared her romantic feelings to women who swooned over Ted Bundy, the notorious 1970s serial killer who confessed to 30 murders. Jeffrey Dahmer and Charles Manson, both prolific killers, also had their admirers. The night stalker Richard Ramirez had many women visit him in prison, including Doreen Leoy, who he went on to marry. Ramirez killed at least 13 people in California between 1984 and August 1985. Clearly, this woman has some mental health issues. We can only hope she will get some assistance for those. If you want to hear more details on the University of Idaho student murders, you can check out episode 207, which we posted on January 8th. Next article. Massachusetts bill allows inmates to swap organs for less prison time. Ethics experts say it's exploitative. The new bill would allow incarcerated individuals the option of donating their organs or bone marrow in exchange for a reduction in their sentence. Marquise Francis wrote this article. 
A new bill proposed in Massachusetts would allow incarcerated individuals the option of donating their organs or bone marrow in exchange for a reduction in their sentences. The bill's authors believe the move would expand the state's pool of donors and restore bodily autonomy to inmates. But ethics experts say it's potentially exploitative and may also be illegal. I don't see any ethical justification for the proposed Massachusetts law, John Hooker, an ethics professor at Carnegie Mellon University, told Yahoo News. If it's okay to release prisoners early due to organ donation, they should be released early without the donation. According to Brandon Paradise, a law professor at Rutgers Law School with a focus on legal and personal ethics says if the bill were to become law, a court may well strike it down. Bill HD 3822, which would establish a bone marrow and organ donation program, was introduced late last month by Representatives Carlos Gonzalez and Judith Garcia, both Democrats. If successful, it would allow those incarcerated in the Massachusetts Department of Corrections to get their sentence reduced anywhere between 60 days and 12 months in exchange for their bodily offering, which may include liver or kidneys, among other vital body parts. Proponents of the bill say the program could be a game changer by helping to close the gap of roughly 4,000 Massachusetts residents waiting for organ donors in a region that remains without an adequate pathway to facilitate such a transaction. Gonzalez told Boston.com that he was inspired in part by a close friend awaiting a kidney transplant who requires dialysis multiple times per week. I love my friend and I'm praying through this legislation that we can extend the chances of life for him and any other person in similar life or death situations. Critics say that trying an incentive to such a serious decision puts unfair pressure on an already vulnerable population. I think it is, frankly, a disaster, say professors, noting that the U.S. does not allow prisoners to enroll in clinical studies because it constitutes a form of undue inducement and saying this poses the same issue. Organ donation needs to be purely voluntary, says the director of Harvard's Edmund and Lilly's Safra Center for Ethics and a former Massachusetts gubernatorial candidate. This is possible in context of a tie to punitive sanctions and the ability to impact them via a donation. The filers of the bill should be encouraged to withdraw it, and it should be otherwise strenuously opposed. Of the roughly 10,000 people in Department of Correction prisons in Massachusetts, Black people make up 28% of those incarcerated, and Latino people make up about 29%. But those groups make up just 9 and 13% of the state's population. According to Paradise, the bill threatens to exacerbate the problem of racial injustice and equality in the administration of criminal law. Even state rep Russell Holmes, one of the bill's co-sponsors, told Yahoo News that he has his own ethical concerns about it. While he agrees in practice with creating a pathway for organ donations, he admitted that he will not support the current bill in totality because he has no idea that its final language would have an incentive tied to it. Holmes said that he hastily agreed to co-sponsor a bill that would help to allow incarcerated people to donate their organs only to their own families and that he didn't know about the additional provisions. I signed on to something that's not 100% what I believe, but I'm thankful that we at least are finally having a conversation about black and brown folks not being in this pool, he said, pointing to his record within the community as the state's longest serving black and Latino legislative caucus member, Holmes said he understands the challenges of a legal system that has failed black and Latino lives. We want to make an opportunity for folks to be able to have a process that seems fair to donate their organs or blood marrow to other family members without any incentive. 
he said, adding that the spirit of the bill is what I signed onto. The final version of the bill is what I vote on. The U.S. Federal Bureau of Prisons currently allows incarcerated inmates to donate their kidneys to members of their family. But in many states like Massachusetts, there is no official pathway to do so. It's why Holmes said that though the language is off, he feels positive the people are beginning to talk about the issue. I'm thankful that at least we're having the conversation that leads with Black people only being 29% likely to find a match, Hispanics 48% likely to find a match with bone marrow, and white people 79%, he said, citing the bone marrow registry. For Jesse White, policy director of Prison Legal Services of Massachusetts, an adequate program must prioritize the root cause of the problem. The solution must target the underlying structural problems leading to health disparities and must not be coercive or disproportionately impact other groups, including incarcerated people. For many, it sets a particularly poor precedent to begin dealing organs for an early release. We're creating a double injustice for over-incarcerated populations by potentially using them as a source of easy bone marrow and or organs. This is a net negative for patients, prisoners, and the authors of the bill who should be spending their time on medical and prison reform instead of this. There is a profound concern for coercion and the ability to voluntarily consent given the magnetic pull of the quid pro quo of sentence reduction say experts. They worry this is a case of selling organs and tissues, not for dollars, but for priceless freedom. Yeah, that is concerning for a number of reasons. Next article. And this one I found really disturbing. Coast woman says neighbors assaulted her dogs with sex toys. Now she fights to regain custody. And Margaret Baker wrote this article. A kiln woman is fighting to get her six dogs back after reporting her neighbor for allegedly physically and sexually assaulting the animals failed to regain custody in court last week. Hancock County Sheriff's deputies seized the six female dogs and three male dogs after responding to a report from Latosha Lynn High, 36, about the alleged abuse of the dogs by a man who lives in a tent inside a concrete structure on Standard Dedu Road, according to deputies who testified in a justice hearing. High owned six of the mixed-breed Bullador dogs, two males named Baby Boy and Tut Tut, and three females named Baby Girl, Amphia, and Oroki. High called deputies to report that she suspected a man had beaten her male dog, Tut Tut, with a PVC pipe and allegedly used a nine-inch sex toy to sexually assault some of the female dogs. The deputies said the hair around some of the female dog's private parts had also been shaven. The man, who was not being identified pending any formal charges, denied any wrongdoing to deputies, though the criminal investigation is ongoing. Two deputies testified last week in a civil proceeding involving High trying to regain custody of the six dogs she said belonged to her. Deputies seized all of them after responding to her report. At the scene, deputies said they confiscated the sex toy covered in dog hair and feces and a pair of man's pants, which appeared to have blood on them. High told deputies she suspected the man had been abusing her dogs for a while. 
The afternoon she reported the crime, she said she and the man had gotten into an argument because he had not paid her for work she had done for him. I said she was cleaning up the man's property for pay. She said she suspected the abuse after she left the man's property that afternoon. Tut-Tut had welts and pockets of fluid on his body and was lying on the ground next to a PVC pipe, which I said she found on the man's property. She told deputies she found the sex toys in the man's pants with blood on them inside his home, along with a bucket of acid and water she believed he used to hide what he had done. Deputies and animal control officers testified at the hearing, saying the animals were living in deplorable conditions with no access to food or water. Hi, the deputy said, lived in a pickup truck on her property on CC Road with the six dogs. The deputy said Hi's property had her home on it, but it had burned along with a camper with broken windows, and there was a tarp covering it that had mold and mildew all over the outside. Three of Hi's dogs were running in and out of the camper. Her other dogs, the animal control officer said, were in a makeshift pen that consisted of barbed wire wrapped around some trees that she used as fence posts. I did not have any electricity or running water. Officers said the dogs did not appear to be emaciated, although the property was littered with various garbage. The deputy said the other dogs lived on the man's property, mainly in and around an old rundown chicken coop. The man lives in the tent inside a concrete structure on his property. The animal control officer said he did have electricity and access to running water. Deputies seized the dogs as well. During her testimony, the deputies described the dogs having medical issues and they were now housed in Hancock County Animal Shelter. High said she did feed her dogs and provide them with water. She said the man usually provided the animals with food and claimed she had access to running water. High said she would never have called the authorities if she knew she would lose custody of the dog she loves. Hancock County Prosecuting Attorney Olin Anderson told the judge that High was simply unable to adequately provide for the animals. I don't think she's a bad person. I don't think anybody here is saying that. I think she's just unable to care for the animals. Unfortunately, she can't provide for herself, and we all feel for her on that. The judge denied the woman's request to regain custody of her six dogs. The man did not show up to appeal for the return of his three dogs. Miss High, you don't have a place to live. What would make you want to keep six dogs? You don't have a place to live yourself. The dogs don't look that bad, but for God's sake, you don't have a place to live. You're living in a vehicle. Why didn't you just sign the dogs over to the pound and give them a good home? High appealed to the judge to reconsider. These dogs are my family, she said. Warren responded, I'm sorry, I truly am. I don't like taking a person's animals for them, but you are unable to take care of them. After the hearing... Hi told the Sun Herald she will look into other ways to regain custody of the animals. She said she loves them and has spent years volunteering at shelters to help animals in need of proper care. I'm getting punished because I'm homeless, she said. I feed my dogs. I feed them every morning and every evening. The dogs are under a 30-day hold before they will be eligible for adoption. That is truly a very, very sad case indeed. The next article that I want to talk about is... A man accused of stealing two monkeys from a Dallas suit likely put them in a regular backpack as he made his escape, according to officials. And Aditi Barade wrote this article. The man suspected of stealing two emperor tamarind monkeys from the Dallas Zoo may have put both animals in his backpack, according to officials. Gordon Shaddles, a vice president of the Dallas Area Rapid Transit, or DART, told NBC News he believes the monkeys were likely kept in a backpack while the suspect took them on the city's light rail. 
From what we're hearing in initial reports, they're very timid creatures, which is probably why they stayed concealed inside the backpack easily. I don't believe they posed any danger to the public, very small animals, and easily concealable in a regular backpack, according to officials. Irwin told police he cut through the enclosure housing the monkeys on the night of January 29th, per court documents. Irwin said he took the monkeys with him and hopped on a train, after which he brought them to an abandoned home. The Dallas police have asked Dart to search their surveillance footage to try and place him on the night he said he had stolen the monkeys after a tip-off. In late January, police found both monkeys in an empty house in Lancaster, a town south of Dallas. The two monkeys were found in a closet along with other animals like cats, pigeons, and some dead fish, per court documents. The closet was littered with bird droppings, feathers, and moldy clothing. Police told the Dallas Morning News the house was in extremely poor condition. Irwin was arrested in early February and is currently in custody at Dallas County Jail. He said he loved animals and plans to steal more if he's released. Irwin faces six charges of animal cruelty and two charges of burglary per county jail records. Representatives for Dallas County and DART did not respond to insiders' requests for comments. Wow, I hope they keep this guy in prison for a while if he intends to steal more animals. And that's it for today, folks. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the podcast at gmail.com. We also occasionally post pictures for our cases. We're at podcast on Instagram. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye! Thank you.